Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9 today, we're going to keep moving through the Gospel of John. So I'd invite you to read along. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're so glad to have you. We like to study through God's Word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So we're not necessarily just jumping to the story that we really read already for the kids anyway. Because that story actually covers the whole story of the Bible. And what we find, particularly, it's easier in um, these passages that talk about the life and ministry of Christ, but what we find in every passage is something pointing us to the fact that Jesus' ultimate mission was to do what Holy Week celebrates, to die on a cross for sinners, to rise again on the third day. And to bring that resurrection power into the lives of all who will believe in him, who will trust him, will stop working for self, working for their own approval before God, and trust that what he did at the cross was enough. If you're here this morning and you don't know that, I pray that as we look at God's word, God might illuminate that to your hearts so that you might see his great love that he has for you. Okay, John chapter 9 is where we're going to be. We're just going to read the first 12 verses this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can go to BibleGateway.com on your phone. You can go to ESV.org on your phone. You can pull up a Bible that should be in the chairs ahead of you or look on with somebody else. But we really emphasize looking at God's word and hearing it so that our senses can be engaged with what God has to say. This is the most important thing we're going to do today. We've sung some beautiful songs and we'll have a sermon to follow this, and we'll have a time in prayer, and we'll have another song. But looking at and listening to God's word right now is the thing you need more than anything in your life in this very moment, believer and non-believer. We need God to speak to us, and we need to respond. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning, as we've already said, being able to listen to and see your word is the most important thing that we need this morning to engage with what you've said to us. 
and reading this story about this man born blind who had never laid eyes on a piece of paper to read the contents, Lord, we thank you this morning for our ability to receive your word. And we pray that by your spirit, you would cause faith to well up in our hearts like a spring of living water, as Jesus has taught us already in the Gospel of John. And that through that, we would believe that he is risen, that he is alive, and that that means that our lives are forever different, forever transformed because of the light of the world. Grant your spirit and glorify your son, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen transformed by light. This is the testimony of this man who was born blind. I want you at the beginning of this to imagine and sit in the idea for a second of being born blind. What would that mean for your life? How different would your life look if you didn't have the eyesight that you have today? Not a few things, Not just a couple of arrangements to adjust so that I could get back on track with what I wanted to do. Did you notice the occupation of this man born blind? What was he? Look at the first verse. He saw a man blind from birth. Second, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? I'm sorry, I'm I'm missing the verse entirely. Look down at verse 8. That's what I wanted. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. How many of you as kids, when you were doing those assignments in elementary school, what do you want to be when you grow up? Anybody sit there and say, I would love to sit on the street corner and rely entirely on the mercy of people I have no idea about. Would any of us have chosen this for ourselves? Would any of us choose it for our worst enemy even, to be born blind, to not be able to see, to rely entirely on the goodness of other people and your own memory for direction and for daily life, to rely entirely on the sense of feeling and hearing. I'm emphasizing this point because we cannot gloss over it. There are four Gospels, we call them in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write a story about what Jesus' ministry looked like and the ultimate conclusion of it at the cross and the empty tomb. The stories emphasize different parts, but are in fact the same story. One of the things that separates the Gospel of John from some of the other Gospels is the limitation of miracles that John only records specific miracles and he picks them out very pointedly. It's not to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were just, oh, we'll throw this one in there. No, no, everybody had an intention. But John has so few compared to his brothers that wrote this story as well that when we come to something like this, we really ought to ask, why did John want to tell us about the man born blind? Well, for considering what happens to this man, that he's transformed by the light of the world. You saw that in John chapter 9, verses 4, right? We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Can you hear even in what Jesus is teaching his disciples, his intention for this blind man? What would light do for the blind man? 
if he were to be sitting here with us and we turned the lights off and turned them on, he may or may not even really notice. It certainly wouldn't make a significant change for him. For me to take a flashlight and shine it into the light, the eyes of a blind man would do nothing but annoy him. But when the light of the world shines on the eyes of one born blind, everything is different. This is not just a story to talk about how wonderful this one man's life became because, again, John is very particular about these miracles. And Jesus, in all of his miracles, did not simply come to say, guess what, y'all were born at a great time in history because I get to heal all your illnesses. His healings and miracles and signs and wonders were just that. They were signs and wonders. They were meant to point to a deeper spiritual reality than simply amending something broken in creation. The recipient of this miracle was a man blind from birth. He didn't become blind through the process of his decay of his outer self. He didn't become blind because of an accident. He has never known sight. Imagine to not know what your mom and your dad look like, what your house looks like, what your dog looks like. To go to work and have no idea what your fellow employees look like or what your job is. Or how about your own face? A completely radical change is coming to this man. And the setting is just as important as the recipient. Because we've spent the last several weeks in John 7 and 8 where Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. And Jesus has already said, maybe it's on the other page in your Bible and you can look at it in verse 12 of John 8. Jesus has already taught us about who he is in this regard. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How can a blind man follow Jesus unless Jesus comes and takes him by the hand and takes him with him? Friends, if you know Christ today, your eyes have been opened to who God is and to the power of what that means to transform your life. But friends, if you don't know Jesus today, the Bible would say that you too are blind. That's what Jesus is ultimately going to get at in the end of this chapter. He says, I came so that those who were blind may see, and those who see may find out that they're really, in fact, blind. Those that think they understand everything may find they really understand nothing. And those who are blind and who can see their need, see their need, that was unintended, who can experience and understand their need might find it in Christ. I am the light of the world. He has taught those in the fest festival of the booths and he has been run out of that festival by some Pharisees, some spiritual leaders of the day who would like to kill him because of what he said, because he has made himself to be the son of God, their accusation was. And these four words at the beginning of John 9, again, I'd, I draw your attention to them. As he passed by, my goodness, has anyone ever been out for your life? If so, what would you do? Your whole life would be centered around the fact that somebody wants you dead, right? All your decisions, everywhere you go, everything you say, be funneled through the fact that somebody wants you dead. And look at what Jesus the Christ does. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Listen to that contrast. The light of the world can see. And the man born blind has no idea. 
But Jesus, as he passes by this man, doesn't say, ah, poor guy, that must be really rough. There's some guys over there that want to kill me, though. I've got no time. I have to take care of myself. He doesn't say that at all. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. Born blind from birth. His disciples ask him a question. He heals this man. And he shows that his whole purpose for being on the earth is wrapped up not in himself or in his own self-preservation. He is relying entirely on the will of his father for his life and his death. And in the meantime, he's working the works of the one who sent him. And you'll notice, I'm sure, in verse 4, Jesus doesn't say, I must work the works. He says, we. Church, you are to be involved in the works of Christ. That is not a condemnation, guilt trip statement. That is an invitation to join in the work of the Savior. How did the disciples participate in the healing of this man? They asked a question. They asked for clarification. And Jesus is the one who did it. That's what he invites us in. The recipient of the miracle, the setting of the miracle. Now let's talk about the most obvious one, the method of this miracle. You've seen Jesus in other parts of the Bible heal people from great distances by just simply saying a word, right? Why in the world, with this man, does Jesus say, I'm going to heal him? But first I need some mud. Do you, you kind of see, like, it's a little bit humorous, doesn't, isn't it? And rather than looking around for some mud, he makes the mud. And rather than going around looking for a water jug so that he can, you know, build his sandcastle in the ground, he spits in the ground. Can you imagine someone so high and holy as Jesus spitting on the ground? I don't know, do you see people like maybe when you're walking in the park and, and maybe, maybe somebody walks by and they just kind of spit off into the trees? I don't know about you, but I feel like that's gross. If you do that, don't, there's no condemnation. But spitting is kind of a gross thing, isn't it? Like if you came to my house and, and wanted to know where the spittuna was so that you could spit while you're visiting, or if we had one in the church, really gross, really weird, really uncomfortable. Imagine the disciples who were like, he's going to heal this man born blind. I can't wait to see him do it. I know how he does it. He says, be healed. And the disciples are watching Jesus, and he hucks a loogie into the dirt. I mean, for a moment, they've got to just be saying, what is going on? This is so weird. And I think Jesus meant for it to be weird. Don't you? You can't just imagine that Jesus was going to do this thing and be like, they better not think this is weird. Right? They, he knew that when, even today, on Easter Sunday, we'd be reading this passage, and he was like, Nick's going to make this sound a lot weirder than it is, but it is weird. It was different. It was unusual. This man was born blind, and his purpose in healing this man born blind is bigger than just fixing the blindness. His purpose has something to do with spitting into dirt, making mud, rubbing it around in his hands, and then... Good thing you're blind, guy, because you didn't see it coming. Smush. Okay. There's mud on my eyes now. Rude. Right? Weird. Different. Why is he doing this? Jesus does not offer an explanation, but we have the Bible. So let me ask you, why the mud? 
What is he getting at? The method is so strange because what Jesus is doing is he's re-engaging the creation of mankind. Do you remember in Genesis 1? God said, let there be light. God said, let there be fish. God said, let there be birds. God said, let there be mountains and seas and rivers and etc. He comes to mankind. He doesn't just say, and he does, he does say, let us make man in our own image, but Genesis 2 tells us something further. Genesis 2, and if you want to know, this is verse 7, it says that God reached down into the dust of the earth and formed man out of it and then did what? No, he didn't spit. Still not sure why Jesus didn't just breathe into the mud, but that's okay. He breathed the breath of life. I've been a broken record about this in the Gospel of John, and I'm not going to stop. You can't accept that people say that Jesus made no claims to being God. Because everything he did was divine. And even in this moment of spitting in the dirt, making clay, rubbing it on his eyes, he is giving us a picture of the recreative power that he holds, that only God could do. None of you can go outside, make mud, and put it on the blind guy that you know and expect healing out of your own power. Jesus has this recreative, amazing power to reverse the effects of the fall, to bring light where there was darkness, to bring sight where there was blindness, and to bring life where there was death. And the disciples ask an extremely important question, don't they? Who sinned? This is a terrible situation. Blind from birth. Who's responsible? Was it his parents? Had they done something so terrible before the eyes of God that God said, you know what, you're really going to understand how wrong that was and your son will be born blind. Or was it something that that son did or would do perhaps? Perhaps God was looking forward into the future and saying, this man is going to make terrible decisions and I'm going to punish him for it beforehand. We know the disciples are wrong in their question because Jesus' answer is neither. But we also need to point out that the disciples do have a reason for asking this. There are clear times in the Old Testament where people are punished because of their sin. Punished with things like blindness, right? How about Lot's wife escaping Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels say, don't turn around, keep going forward. And what does Lot's wife do? Imagine, of course it happens in slow motion, right? Turns around and pillar of salt. Why? You disobeyed God. Does God have the right to punish those who disobey him? Absolutely. He's God. If you don't like it, it doesn't matter. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be cruel. But it doesn't matter if you don't like what God has the right and the right to do and not do. But Jesus says there's something else going on here. And it gives explanation to something that, that really should help us in understanding some of our situations in life. Because I think you and I can understand that some of the things that we struggle with in life that's all my fault. That's all your fault. There's things that we've done, decisions that we've made that have led us to certain situations. But there's other things where we just say, why is it that a car crash, why is it that a born blind, why is it that, et cetera, et cetera, terrible things that happen without any explanation. And Jesus says, it is for the glory of God because I will come and do a work 
and the glory of my Father will be revealed in this person's life. R.C. Sproul says something very helpful here. He says, there is no injustice on the vertical plane. That is to say that between you and God, God has never done anything wrong to you. Ever. That's a hard pill to swallow. Wouldn't it be nice if we could say, you know what, God, you just kind of messed up. You wanted to put this blindness on somebody, you missed and you hit me instead. Maybe you could fix this. None of us have any right to stand before God and say, I would like you to fix my life situations because you have done wrong here. There is no injustice on the vertical plane. There's plenty of injustice on the horizontal plane, right? We do wrong to each other all the time. We see it, we feel it, we deal with it. We carry it with us for years. And we carry it with us and we direct it at a person. And we say, that person is why my life is so messed up. And we give it so much power, don't we? We give it so much power over our lives. And yet God would so choose to send Jesus in this moment to explain something about sin and suffering, that it's not always due to a person's actions. It is not a simple formula of big sin equals big suffering. I think we can all think of maybe even a political leader right now in another country who is doing terrible things and probably didn't miss his coffee this morning. Still being treated like a ruler. Still enjoying things in life that so many people won't enjoy. And that's been the story all throughout history. There are those who suffer in terribly awful ways who have not directly caused that to happen. And there are those who cause great suffering and do seem to have nothing happen to them in turn. But death still looms over all. Death is still the greatest issue. And our suffering is meant to point us to something about that. That in the Garden of Eden, when the fall happened and Adam and Eve ate from the tree that God said not to, that when Adam sinned and brought sin to all mankind and a curse with it and all the consequences, both because of our actual sin and because of our inherited sin. Inherited sin, your father, your forefather, our first father that we all share, Adam, he sinned, and it's your fault too. That's tough, but it's true. And we've got to deal with the reality of that. How do we know it's true? Because you're going to sin today. You're going to sin tomorrow. I'm not encouraging you to do it, but we know. We know that we share in the guilt of Adam that we've inherited. And Christ has come as the second Adam to present to us that his mission is to reverse the effects of the fall, to reverse the curse, to reverse suffering and bring life. That is what's going on in this little moment where Jesus did a weird thing to heal a guy who was born blind. All of that wrapped up in one little spit going into the dirt and healing and changing the life of one man forever. The first Adam was exiled for the garden, left to suffer, left to work the ground and the, that nature would be against him, that all that God created for his good would be now against him. And Christ comes to reverse all of that. And we don't realize that sin blinds us as well to God's redemptive plan. We can see all the flaws really easily, right? <clears throat> we don't need to spend time convincing you this morning that the world is messed up. You know it. But that messed upness of the world, the effects of sin, both our actual sin and our inherited sin, 
has actually blind us to seeing the good work that God is doing in the midst of it. A funny story. Yesterday, we're in the Meyer parking lot. Nora and Lucy sitting in the back, my five-year-old and two-year-old. My wife is inside getting some delicious food for today for Easter lunch. And we're waiting for mom to come out so that we can pick her up. And I've got the car parked just in the right, you know, in the fire lane like I'm not supposed to. Tim left so I can say that. But it's not parked, you know, I'm idling, so it doesn't count. Anyway, I'm waiting and waiting, and Nora goes, Dad, can I have a tissue? And I'm like, no, girl, we don't have any tissues, and we're waiting for Mom so that we can go, and we're going to, too much going on. She said, well, I really need a tissue. My nose is running. I'm like, okay, you got to sleeve, right? I mean, I hate to say it, it's gross, but live in the reality here, Nora. Sorry, we don't have tissues. We'll remember next time. And then she says, Dad, look. And my sight transformed my whole understanding of the situation. Because she did not have a runny nose. Her nose was bleeding. And blood all down her hand over her beautiful little face. She was okay. You know, dry nose kind of thing. She wasn't injured. But you know that stunned look that kids get? Doing this whole thing. And when I looked back and saw the state of Nora's nose, I could not simply say, use your sleeve. Like I said, there are no tissues. I had to get out of the fire lane, in which I wasn't supposed to be in anyway, get into a parking spot, get out, and figure out some way to clean up this child. She was very gracious and kind and patient through the whole process. But it was amazing how seeing what was going on Changed my whole idea of what was really going on. I had to put eyes on the situation. I had to have somebody's voice awaken the deadness of my perspective. You getting the spiritual metaphor yet? To turn around, which could also be repentance too, and see what was going on and do something about it and not just perceive it from what I've heard or what I think or what I imagine. I'm a dad. I've been doing this for five years. I get it. You have a runny nose, whatever. Her nose is bleeding. You can't just let her sit there until you get home. You got to do something about it. We don't understand why evil continues in the world, but when we see it, we recognize it. And we, it doesn't take us long to realize how severe the problem of evil and suffering is, is that's going on in the world. It continues in the world. The disciples do just what we would have done in this instance. Man, that man is born blind. What a terrible situation. Sin must have brought this. Who sinned, Lord? Who was it that did that? And so we, in our understanding that God is good, he is powerful, he's compassionate, so why doesn't he end all evil? Why doesn't he end all suffering? Why doesn't he have tissues in the car when he knows he should? We try to reconcile evil apart from the matter of God's glory. I'm not here to give you this whole philosophical presentation on the problem of evil. That's as far as I'm going, because that's as far as Jesus went. Why is there evil in the world? Is it proportionate to our sin and our goodness? And can we somehow develop a pattern where we can understand that if I sin this much, I get this much punishment, but if I do this much good, then I should get less punishment, that I should get more blessing. And so we just weigh the balances. I put good over here, God puts blessing over here. I put sin over here, he puts suffering over here. Is that how this works? We need to look no further than the Messiah who is speaking himself, the Son of God, who had done nothing wrong whatsoever, and yet was crucified like a criminal. 
left to die. Naked and bloody. A torturous death. The word excruciating was invented to describe what happens on the cross. It is excruciating. We try to reconcile evil, and we can't because we don't put the glory of God in it. Why did Jesus come? Remember John chapter 1. He's revealed to us the glory of the Father. He's full of grace and truth. And even to the cross, he would show us how great his Father is, and consequently himself as well. That he is different than any of us. That in our suffering, our immediate go-to is not... How will God be glorified in this? What is God teaching me? What does God have to say about this? How can I look to him and say, Lord, I don't get it, but I trust you. That is not where we run immediately, is it? What do I need to do, Lord? Oh, hold on, I know. I didn't read my Bible this morning. Oh, you know what? I'm like three days behind on my Bible reading. Oh, hold on. Uh, been missing church on Sunday morning. Oh, no, that's not it. When was the last time I prayed? Oh, I forgot to tithe. You see where I'm going with this? Pick your thing that you can put on the scale and your imagination is that blessings increase because you've done something. Church, the Lord wants to bless you because he wants to. Because Christ has earned that blessing for you. Because in his resurrection, you have all the promises of God true, as we said to the little kids. All of the promises of God are fulfilled and are perfect. We can't be like this guy Naaman. You'll remember him perhaps from 2 Kings chapter 5. He had leprosy, a terrible disease, where pieces of your body just falls off. Ew. He was rich and powerful, a military leader. I'm going to figure out a way that God's going to heal me, and it's going to be amazing. He goes to the prophet, and the prophet says, yeah, go, go take a bath in the Jordan River. Ew. Why the Jordan River? You might as well just spit and make mud and put it in my eyes. I don't want to go to the Jordan River. Naaman's servant, the wisest person in the whole story, says, he doesn't say dude, he says, sir, if he were to ask you to do something great, you would do it. Go do it. Just do what the prophet said and see if it comes to pass. Because your pride is not worth you dying from leprosy. Of course, Naaman goes to the Jordan River and he washes in it and he comes out perfectly healed. But his thought was, I'll buy my way. I will pay for that blessing so that God and I are even. Church, people, friends, you will never be even with God. That's why heaven is an eternity of worship. It is an eternity of embracing the work that he's created for you and enjoying all of that. Do you know Christians are supposed to enjoy the Christian life? But we think because we can weigh out these balances, if I suffer, if I cause myself enough suffering, maybe God won't worry about making me suffer because I've already got that taken care of. We're really good at making ourselves suffer, and yet there's still things that happen outside of our control. It's for the glory of God. We can't embrace this worldview where our good and evil measures out the balance on either side and makes everything right. This man born blind is so humble, it seems. It seems that his suffering has brought him to a place where he just says, I need whatever God will do, and I have nothing to offer, and I have no excuse. I, I simply need to be healed. But it could have been that in this process, he might have thought, man, I've been dealt a terrible hand this side of eternity, this side of heaven and hell. Maybe I don't need to do anything because I've been born, born blind. I've suffered enough. Well, the truth is, is that our suffering that is supposed to be a matter of the glory of God is also something that points us to our deepest need. 
that this world is broken. And suffering should speak to our conscience. Our conscience that says, some things have happened to me, but a lot of the bad things in my life I've brought on on myself. I've even brought on bad things in the lives of other people. I've broken God's holy and just righteous law. I've sinned. That is to say, I missed the mark. Shot the arrow at the target, target and he, it went out in the field. I have no idea where it is. His true problem wasn't the thing that wasn't his fault. The true danger of suffering is in thinking that if I suffer, then God's going to pay me back for it eventually and make things right. It's not true. Our suffering is not a means to an end of our salvation or making things right. Our suffering points us to the need of the Savior. The true effect of sin in the world is not most clearly seen in the suffering of an individual. It's seen in a conscience where we recognize I have been acting transactionally with God. He gives me a good or service, I pay him for it. I show up at church, I pray, I read my Bible, I do a good deed, and hopefully I'll balance things out with God. Impossible. The effect of our personal sin is that we will die. Christian, you will die also for your personal sin, but your death will not be permanent. Jesus promised in John chapter 8, whoever believes in me will not taste death, will not see death. And what he was talking about was real death. Not just the death that we see and we mourn over our loved ones who are no longer present with us, but the death that God pronounces on all who have broken his law. The wages of sin is death. That is the fear, that is the problem, rather, with our suffering, is that our suffering might seem to excuse us. But if we speak to our conscience, if the Holy Spirit reveals to us that I have a personal guilt problem in the midst of it, I can do nothing but throw myself at the mercy of Jesus. And I've got good news there. Because Jesus came as the second Adam to restore our relationship with our Creator. That if we will repent, that is to turn from our own living, our own ways of relating to God and relate to God in the way that he's prescribed. And he's prescribed the cross. He's prescribed the resurrection. He's prescribed the empty tomb because it was his son who died on that cross. And when he died on that cross, he didn't just want to say, I love you this much. He says, you deserve this. And I love you. And I will take this place. And this will not be the end for me. It would be the end for you, friend, if you don't believe in Christ. Death will be the end. But for those in Christ, death is just the beginning. Death is the mud rubbed into our eyes. But the end result is that we wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. John is particular about pointing that out because the sent one is Jesus. He was sent to wash us, to cleanse us from the suffering of this world, from the suffering of our own sin, and take that on himself. And the gospel can be a kind of ugly thing. It can kind of be like mud made out of spit, rubbed in the eyes of those who the Bible says are enemies of God. It is not an attractive thing to talk about the cross, to hang it up in the front of your church. You all look at this and you see a symbol for religion. This is an execution device. Other preachers have said this before, but what if we tra changed out the cross for an electric chair? You wouldn't be like, oh yes, the electric chair, a symbol of my faith. Jesus comes and takes the punishment that we deserve. He takes our sin and our sorrow and he makes them 
his very own. He bore our sin to Calvary and suffered and died alone, but he did not stay dead because the darkness could not overcome the light. The light of the world overcame the darkness. John Milne is a really smart Bible guy. He says, we can make sense of a dark world only by believing in the one who came to be the light of the world. If you want to figure out the problem of suffering, go for it. There's all sorts of ideas out there that will try to explain why things have gone wrong, but they won't give you a solution. The solution will boil down to this. I promise you, every other solution in the world boils down to this. If you can try to make your good impact outweigh the bad impact that you've made in your life, maybe things will start to get better. But there's only one man who's come back from death, and it offers to you a path out of death. He is the light of the world. He is the one who transforms us such that the neighbors and those who had been seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some people are like, no, that's not him. That man's blind. This man can see. He's completely different. I love how it says here that they asked him, how were your eyes opened? His appearance was so dramatically changed by the opening of his eyes. They couldn't even recognize him, some of them. You couldn't possibly be the man who used to sit and beg. You can see. You look totally different. And yet, what does he say? I am the man. I am that man you're talking about. I was blind, and now I see. Wow, you must be some great biblical scholar. What do you have to tell us? You were, you were healed. How did he do this? What kind of deep theological truths, philosophical, what do you have? Uh, he told me to go wash, and I did, and now I see. He gets questioned later on the same way. He says, I went, I washed, and now I came back seeing. Well, what do you know about Jesus? We think he's a sinner because he did this on the Sabbath, the holy day. You're not supposed to work then. What do you think about him? He's a sinner, right? The man later on will say, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. That's it. He doesn't have to go through a seminary program afterwards to understand the intricacies of what happened to him. He's been transformed by the work of the Savior. And church Christians, so have you. This is how a good God responds to evil and suffering in the world. He sends his son. He sends the one, and Jesus says, go in the pool called sent. Because when you go, it's not like, wow, I'm obeying God. I'm earning my salvation because I'm walking around with mud on my eyes, and I'm going to go clean myself off. That's not it. You go to the pool that's called sent, not because he's the sent one, but because Jesus is the sent one. And because he's the sent one who, believe, who causes us to believe, who causes us to repent and turn from sin and to trust in him and to walk in that transformation life because of the light of the world. And church, it doesn't end there. We know this, right? So we come back up to the front and we see the front of John chapter 9 and we see that Jesus says again, we must work the works of him who sent me because it's daytime now, but nighttime's coming. Now, when Jesus said that, he meant that there is a set period of time that I'm going to work, and I'm going to spend my every single breath doing what God has sent me to do, and then I'm going to the cross. That's the night. Church, your night is coming, because death is still coming for you. It's not the end. It's the awakening. It's that mud washing off of your eyes, and you seeing for the first time truly and, and really embracing your life in Christ. But there is a night coming 
and there will be no evangelism in heaven because everybody knows the gospel. But there's people here now that you know that don't know Jesus. Are you working the works of him who sent you? We're united with Christ in his resurrection and that power of what he accomplished at the cross is applied to our hearts, not just so that we can see, but so that we can call others to see. And that's what this man did. Dude had no theology degree. He had never once joined a Bible study. He hasn't even physically read the Bible before. And he's telling people, all I know, I was blind and now I can see. And what's the difference in that? Jesus. We're united with him, but we're also called to work out the works that he has for us. This man immediately began to proclaim the gospel, and he didn't even know he was doing it. It just was the overflow of the new transformation in his life. Maybe you need to stop worrying so much about how you're going to present the gospel, and Nike, just do it. Just preach the gospel. Don't worry about having all the questions, all the answers. People will ask you, yeah, well, how do you explain suffering? How do you explain this? How do you? I don't know. I just know Jesus, and you should too. That's our testimony when it all boils down to it. So a couple things. First, rightly understand suffering as pointing to the great sufferer, pointing to the risen one, pointing to our need that he satisfies. Secondly, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Don't live the rest of this afternoon as though you need to prove something to God to balance out the weight of your suffering and your good deeds and forget all of that stuff. Throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus every day and remind yourself of his goodness to you. Thirdly, consider the root of all alternative gospels, all the other answers the world would give to us. If you can just make a little more money, if you could just figure out your family situation, if you could move into a new house, throw all that out the door. Trust in Christ. And last, the night is coming, church. For Christ, it was his death. For us, it is our rest. It is our true resurrection. One day, we will be raised up with him and dwell with him forever and enter in the, the rest and the joy of our master. So work the works that he has for you by the power of the resurrection today because that power is in you, Ephesians 1 tells us, that all of what Christ has done has, tr has overcome your life and your sin, and made you see, but it's also empowered you to bear witness to Jesus. i got to give you one more old dead guy that has great things to say, J.I. Packer. He says, it's not just the power in the message. It is not just power through the messenger. It is power in and upon those who believe, making their life utterly different from what it was before. Who are you? Are you that man who used to beg? Yeah, I am him. You can't possibly be him. Packer goes on to say it is resurrection power, a matter of God raising with Christ those who have become willing to die with Christ. Will you lay your own life down? Will you lay down your own prerogatives, priorities, and perspectives and embrace him, all that he has for you? He's overcome death. I don't think you're going to do that on your own. In fact, I know you won't. But I know that we can know the one who has and we can walk in that resurrection power. Listen, if you don't know Jesus today, I, I hope that if nothing else, when you walk out of here, you at least think about why you had to listen to the weird bald guy for so long today. Why it seems so important to sit here for this amount of time. Think about that. And ask God if he would show you, if he would so open your eyes. Friend, this is what God loves to do. He loves to bring salvation. 
The old Puritans, some Christians from long ago, used to say that the wrath of God was his strange work. It was not what he bends towards. It was not his intention. It was not his love. His love is to show mercy, to show grace, to call you to turn from your sin and be forgiven and receive that and trust him for it. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, thank you this morning that you are good and you do good, that as we sing to you now, we are singing to the one who has made us new, who has transformed us, and who has given us amazing grace. We once were blind, and yet now we see. That is the core of our testimony. Jesus showed up and made such a dramatic difference. Lord, I pray that if anyone in here doesn't have that difference in their lives, that if they haven't been transformed by the mud of the gospel, that you would so change their hearts and show them your glory. And that for your church, Lord, would you mobilize us? Would you wake us up? Because it's daytime right now. We have to be doing the works that you have for us. And we have the power to do them. Lord, we just need our wills fixed. We just need you to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can say, what else could I do but serve him with my whole life? We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.